Science and Answers. We've seen movies and read books and dreamed of what heaven would really look like. But are all accounts that we hear about factual? How do we know? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat is sharing a message entitled, Trips to Heaven and Back, Are They for Real? If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucran, with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and provide biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, you're seeing many best-selling books on people who have died and went to heaven or hell and have returned to tell us about it. 90% of Americans believe there is a life after death. The reason is the mass majority understand that if God does not exist and if the grave is the end, then we are relegated to live in a universe void of any meaning, void of any purpose, and void of any kind of hope or significance. You know, if death is the end, then we live for just a brief moment here in this vast universe only to face our eternal extinction forever, never to exist again. And one day, mankind will come to an end, this earth will die, and the universe comes to an end as it reaches its state of final entropy. And what difference did it make that we were ever here? Everything ends in annihilation. And so without God and without eternal life, then our life is void of any meaning, significance, hope, or purpose. And also, we are created in the image of God. We instinctively know there's something beyond the grave. Ecclesiastes 3.11 said, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also He has put eternity into man's hearts. And so, the understanding that there is something beyond the grave is instilled within us because we're created in the very image of God. That is why the majority of Americans and people throughout the world believe there is life after death. Well, there are many accounts, many best-selling books that talk about people who allegedly went to heaven and hell and have returned to tell us about it. Well, what are we to make of these as Christians? I've been asked to endorse many of these speakers as they have come to town, but I've evaluated their books, and I think we need to be cautious as we approach this whole arena of trips to heaven and hell and back. Now, many of these events are called near-death experiences, or NDEs. There are two kinds of death here, all right? There's biological death, and that is irreversible. In the Bible, death occurs when there is a permanent separation of the soul and spirit from the body. When that occurs, you have what's called biological death, and that's irreversible. Hey, you're not coming back, all right? And there's a few cases in the Bible where people have died a biological death and were dead for several days and then were resurrected from the dead. Of course, the most famous being Jesus Christ. Okay, that's biological death. It's irreversible. If you die a biological death, you're not coming back. All of the trips to heaven and hell and back, some are visions where people never actually died, and others are what we call near-death experiences or NDEs. This occurs when people are near medical or clinical death. 
right? Clinical death or medical death is one in which there are no visible medical signs of life. There's no heartbeat, no pulse or brain activity, all right? But these are near-death experiences. This isn't biological death. If it's biological death, you're not coming back. But these are near-death experiences. Now, there are several common traits when it comes to these near-death experiences that seem to happen to people with all kinds of different religions and different worldviews. And here are some of the common traits of these near-death experiences. During the near-death experiences, people find themselves fully conscious and fully aware of their surroundings and their personhood. Second, they're unable to adequately explain the experience. There's just an inability to explain what has happened. It's hard to use any analogy from this earth to describe their experience. Third, there's hearing the news that they are indeed dead, hearing a medical professional declare them to be dead. Fourth, there's a feeling of peace and quiet, sensing intense pleasure and peace. Then there's the noise, hearing a distant sound at or near death that can be pleasant or it can be disturbing. Six, there is a dark tunnel, someone traveling through a passageway in a dark tunnel and often seeing a light of some kind at the end of the tunnel. Then there's the out-of-body experience, seeing their body apart from themselves. There's numerous accounts where people are on the ceiling watching the doctors and nurses operate on their body. And there's too many cases where these people can describe accurately what was going on in the operating room. Or they can accurately describe what was happening in the waiting area and the halls of the hospital. Or sometimes they can accurately describe what was going on in their house miles away or at their auntie's or uncle's house miles away. They can accurately describe. There's numerous accounts of that. Or, you know, there's some that are, that are pretty interesting. For example, some that they're going to, you know, their car is going to crash and it's going to be a pretty serious collision here. And just seconds before that collision, they can see above, you know, they find themselves above their car watching themselves crash into that wall or into that other car. There's numerous experiences of that. Eighth, there's meeting others there, encountering some spiritual being, sometimes an angel, sometimes it's a spiritual leader like Jesus or Krishna or Buddha or a departed loved one to guide them through the experience. Ninth, there's a being of light, beholding a brilliant light that emanates from a being who radiates love and who communicates by thoughts, but not by audible speech. And often they have a dialogue with this being, but often they can't remember what that dialogue was. You know, some people say, you know, I I went to paradise or heaven and I ran into Buddha or Krishna and I asked them a question I've always wanted to know. And they say, well, what was the answer? And they'll say, I don't know. I can't remember. Then there's the review. They witness a vivid panoramic review of their life very quickly. Then they run into the border or the limit, number 11, feeling an obstruction or barrier, often a fence, a door, or a body of water that keeps them from going any further in their journey. 
Then 12, there's the coming back, returning back to their body. Some wanting to stay with the being of light and others choosing to return. 13, there's the telling others, disclosing the experience but with great reluctance because they fear the skepticism of the others and the inability to really accurately describe what happened. And so there's a reluctance of telling others their experience. Fourteen, there's an effect on the lives. They view life differently and view others in a very different kind of way. Fifteenth, there's the view of death that changes. Many of them lose the fear of death. Because for many, it was a very peaceful kind of experience. And so they lose that fear of death. And then 16th and finally, we have what's called the corroboration, the verifying the experience by relating details or specific incidences that happened while the person was supposedly dead. You know, for example, being able to explain exactly who was in the operating room and what they were doing. There are too many instances where people find themselves looking down on the operating table and being able to name doctors and nurses and specific things about the procedure and conversations that took place. Or miles away saying, you were at home. Mom was here cooking chicken. Dad was sitting here talking with sister here. There's a famous story of a young girl who died a medical death. And she said, you know, there's a red shoe on the roof of the hospital and the doctors and nurses said oh what are you talking about and she said no i was there there's a red shoe on the roof of the hospital and so they went all the way up to the roof of the building and indeed she was indeed right so there are many dozens of accounts where people can accurately describe what was going on around them when they were supposedly dead So those are about 16 characteristics of these near-death experiences, common traits that people have. And I got those from Mark Hitchcock's book, Visits to Heaven and Back. That's by Mark Hitchcock here. He identifies about 16 common traits that people have in these near-death experiences. Now, there have been some naturalistic explanations uh, for these accounts and, and why these things happen. Some say they are simply hallucinations induced by pain or the medication given to the patient. Others say they're leftover memories from the birth experience or when they were very young children, suddenly they are remembering these things. Or it is the reaction of the brain to alter the levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide that they are receiving, either the lack of oxygen because they are no longer capable of, you know, breathing normally, that they are induced to these kinds of experiences. Or it's a psychological wish fulfillment, hoping that there is this kind of afterlife that they believe in. Or it's a defense mechanism, mentally leaving the body and watching what's happening you know, as a third person is somehow a defense mechanism that kicks into the brain. Or it's a temporal lobe seizures, or it's the result of sensory deprivation. Now, those might explain some of these experiences, but they fall short in many of these well-documented cases where people can just accurately describe what's going on in the operating room or what's going on 
outside of the operating room, such as in the waiting halls or in the cafeterias of the hospital, or they can describe accurately what was happening to them as they're being taken to the hospital. There's numerous cases where people find themselves outside of the ambulance and they're able to describe what's going on around them and even they're able to tell what the number on the roof of the ambulance was that took them to the hospital and the route that was taken or they can describe things that happened miles away. They can accurately describe these things and in situations like that these naturalistic explanations come short of being able to explain or accommodate these incidences. So what we find here then is that when the person dies a clinical or a medical death there is an immaterial essence that leaves the body in a fully conscious state that is able to describe accurately events around them in a fully conscious, coherent manner. Now, what do these near-death experiences prove then? Well, they do not prove that there is a heaven or a hell. Those who die and say they went to heaven or hell, these facts cannot be verified. You know, people say they died and they went to some kind of paradise or heaven. That's really hard to verify. What we can verify is those who die a clinical or medical death and then can describe the events around them. For example, people who die and say, well, the ambulance that took me to the hospital, I saw the number on the roof. I was looking down and on the roof, and this is the number of the ambulance. Well, that can be verified. Or people who die and say, in the hallway were sitting these people, and the doctor came out, and this is the conversation that took place. Or in the operating room, this is what happened, and you dropped the scalpel, and this nurse picked it up and had to go here and there. Though facts like that can be verified, and many of those facts have been verified. But trips to heaven or hell, those we cannot verify. So near-death experiences don't necessarily prove uh, there's a heaven or a hell conclusively. But what they do prove is this. It proves that there's an immaterial essence in us that seems to be fully conscious and survive the death of the physical body. Now, for Christians, that's really no problem. That immaterial essence we call the spirit and the soul. And as Christians, that's really no problem for us, that there is something immaterial within us that survives the death of the physical body. That would match up with biblical teaching that we indeed survive the death of the body. And really, it's the Christian worldview that best accommodates these near-death experiences. See, in atheism or naturalism, it teaches simply that we are material beings. We're just chemistry encased in flesh. And so when we die physically, we should not experience anything at all because once the body dies, our consciousness comes to an end and we shouldn't experience anything. However, many atheists, and I've talked to a few personally, have experienced these near-death experiences where they physically died for maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and they said the experience was extremely peaceful, and they were fully conscious and aware when their body died. And 
they don't realize that really that would contradict atheism. And when we have these extensive conversations here of what they experience, uh, I tell them really, you should not experience anything as an atheist or a naturalist. You're simply chemistry encased in flesh. And when that comes to an end, you shouldn't experience anything. So the naturalist worldview has trouble accommodating these near-death experiences. Now, pantheism teaches that our individuality really is an illusion. And when we die, we are absorbed into the impersonal cosmic energy of the universe. So, for example, in movies like Avatar, when Sigourney Weaver died, they said she became one with Awa. Or in Star Wars, when they die, they are absorbed into the Force. Therefore, in the worldview of pantheism, we should not experience a conscious individual existence. It's the Christian worldview, really, the biblical worldview that can best accommodate these near-death experiences because in biblical anthropology, we understand that we are not just physical beings, that we are beings made of body, soul, and spirit. There is something immaterial that survives the death of the body. The Bible teaches that clearly that we are body, soul, and spirit. And the Bible teaches that this immaterial essence in us, our mind, our emotions, our will, our personality, that's part of the soul, survives the death of the body. And the Bible teaches that we are not absorbed into some impersonal cosmic energy. The Bible teaches that we will survive the death of the body as individually, as individuals. Our individuality is real and that it exists forever. For example, in Matthew Chapter 18, verse 28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus clearly taught that there's an immaterial essence in us. He called it the soul that survives the death of the body that immediately goes to be with the Lord or immediately separated from the Lord, quarantined in a place called hell. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul states this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the Old and New Testament, it teaches that there is a soul, an immaterial essence that indeed separates from the physical body at death. Medical science is beginning to see that indeed we are not just physical beings, that we're not just chemistry encased in flesh. There's something immaterial in us that drives this machine. You know, for example, if you've got a robot, a robot is lifeless until there is electricity that pulsates through the robot that brings that thing to life. The body is an incredible machine, but there's something immaterial there that drives this machine. Not only drives the machine, but gives it its ability to think, feel, and experience and interpret the world around them. That's why in the medical field, many are moving more towards a holistic approach to medicine. You know, Western medicine used to just focus on the physical. You come in, we diagnose you, we give you medication, and that's it. We just address the physical symptoms. Well, now we're discovering that we're more than just chemistry, that indeed there's a whole 
emotional component to us, a relational component to us, a psychological and spiritual component to us. And so now many are moving towards what we call holistic medicine. Unfortunately, you know, that approach is dominated by Eastern religions and Eastern philosophy. But the Christian should have a holistic approach where we don't just treat the physical symptoms of the person, but we also address issues of nutrition, but also the mental state of the person, the relational state of the person. And now more and more, we're beginning to see the benefits of addressing the spiritual life of the person because we are more than just chemistry encased in flesh. In fact, the medical science teaches, I believe that every seven years, every cell of our body has been replaced Yet, we're still the same person. We carry the same personality and the memories continue throughout our lives, even though our cells are constantly changing and being replaced, fully replaced, I believe, every seven years. Yet, there's something immaterial in us that continues consistently on, despite the fact that our body is changing. So though the body and soul are very interconnected, what happens to one affects the other, many are beginning to realize There's something immaterial in us, indeed, that drives this machine. Now, when it comes to many of these trips to heaven and hell and back, I believe it is wise that as Christians, we approach these very cautiously. And first, we have to understand the Bible alone is the authority on heaven and hell, right? As compelling as some of these experiences may be, whether they be near-death experiences or visions that people have, we need to experience cannot overrule or override what the Bible teaches. The Bible is the authority on heaven and hell, and that's the position that I am taking here. So any of these alleged trips to heaven and hell and back or visions must match up with Scripture. If it contradicts the Scripture, then I'll be very cautious about it, no matter how compelling that experience may be to the individuals. Second, remember, near-death experiences, since they are not dead, you know, the accounts of heaven and hell must be matched up with the Bible, right? Because in near-death experiences, you haven't died, all right? The Bible says if you die and go to heaven or hell, you're not coming back. So these are near-death experiences. So no matter how sincere the person may be, if their account doesn't match up with Scripture, we should be very cautious about their account. Only a few in Scripture have been to heaven. I think there's only about five in the Old and New Testament who've been to heaven. But in recent times, there are numerous Dozens and dozens and dozens, I might be safe to say hundreds of people who say they have been to heaven or hell. But the Bible says that when you die and go to heaven or hell, you're not coming back. All right. For example, Proverbs 30 verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Well, in this series of rhetorical questions here in Proverbs 30, verse 4, you know, who has gathered the wind in his fist? Well, no one except God. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Well, nobody except God. So that opening, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Well, no one, only God. All right, that matches the series of rhetorical questions that follow. And this is, what is 
his name and what is his son's name. That's pointing to early teaching of the Trinity there. But Proverbs 30 verse 4 says, really, no one has gone to heaven and hell and come back except God and his son. John chapter 3 verse 13 says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. So when it comes to these accounts of people going to heaven and to hell and coming back, the wise thing to do is to approach it very cautiously. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 1 through 5 that he was taken to heaven but was forbidden to give detailed account of what he saw there. So there's only about five people that were allowed a vision of heaven and allowed by God to tell us something about it. Yet today we have dozens, if not hundreds, of people who give us their written account or there have been movies written about them who have died, went to heaven or hell, and have come back. So in these cases, remember this principle. The Bible is indeed the authority, and their experience has to match up with Scripture. And remember, most of these are near-death experiences. They haven't died biologically. We have to approach these accounts very cautiously. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, as well as Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.